0: From RTE Radio, I'm Neil Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. The trouser
1: leg of my wedding outfit wouldn't fit my arm now. If you took 10% of Bushy Park or Phoenix Park away, people wouldn't even notice.
2: And I've had hugs from Pete Clare, who said to me, if I'm not spending that money in jeans, they look at their wonderful posterior in them and they go,
0: I found the perfect jean
2: and thank you.
0: Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, is Waterford the greatest county in Ireland? Why you're wearing the wrong jeans. And Bray Darcy fluffs a duck. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's fluffing a duck in bootcut jeans somewhere in Waterford right now. Let's dive right into Shea Burns' monologue on this morning's 9 o'clock show, because it started out as a visit the sunny Southeast infomercial. And why not?
3: Waterford. It's a lovely place. I've been there many times. Many, for many years, we used to go down with musical societies to the Waterford International Festival of Light Opera. Now, that sounds very grand. And it was. It was in the beautiful Theatre uh, Theatre Royal in Waterford, which I was wa- actually, I was watching Daniel O'Donnell on TG Cahard the other night and uh, the brilliant Louise Morrissey from Banshee was on and they were coming from that gorgeous theatre. And it's, it's like, a, if you've been in the gaiety of the Olympia or the bigger theatres around the world, it's a mini version of that. It has the stalls, it has the circle, it has the gods, has everything, but just a little bit. You can almost feel, if you're standing on the front of the stage, that you can reach out and touch the balcony at the circle. But that's, that, I, I digress slightly, but that is one of the attractions of uh, Waterford City, that you have that uh, beautiful part. But this is all about Waterford and Waterford County, because... Hot on the heels of the Conde Nast Traveller magazine featuring Waterford in their Best Places to Go 2024 listing, the Southeast County is enjoying a tourism spotlight and now reaping the rewards of recent investment in its tourism product offering. The New York Times said 52 places to go for 2024 has just been announced, and Waterford is included as the only Irish destination. In the international listing. Now we do have a team member from Waterford, but he didn't influence this at all. In fact, he loves Waterford, but he said, I'm staying out of this. There's nothing to do with me. Writing for the New York Times, the travel expert Annalise Sorensen said, yes, Waterford is synonymous with crystal, but the city founded in 914 also sparkles with history and national treasures. In the Viking Triangle, Waterford's cobblestone core, a new digital story trail brings the past to life at stops like a medieval landmark, Reginald's Tower. Yes, not far from the theatre. The city is also uh, offers less ancient attractions, including the new Irish Wake Museum, which I found particularly interesting. It's dedicated to funeral uh, ritual all the way through uh, the various centuries and some wonderful artefacts there as well. And the Irish Museum of Time, which showcases grandfather clocks, watches and more. Great uh, appeal to horologists everywhere. Uh, But some wonderful examples there and it's actually housed in an old church and architecturally they've done a lovely job with it it's all glass and mezzanine floors and it's a lovely place to walk around it's very calm so if you get a chance to go there the Irish Museum of Time in Waterford she says Waterford's natural riches rival its historical ones notably the Copper Coast hemmed by towering cliffs and scalloped coves isn't that beautifully written the coast forms part of the Waterford Greenway, a nearly 30-mile path along a disused rail line. And it goes on to just speak beautifully about Waterford. So thank you. Thank you to Lee Sorensen. Thank you to the New York Times. Thank you to Condé Nast. But thank you to Waterford, whose investment and vision about tourism, which has been in place for the last over 20 years, that that strategy was put in place 20 years ago. And people, various people have come to parts of tourism and county council and they've kept that going and now listed in the 52 places
0: in the new york times which you couldn't you couldn't pay for couldn't you i'm not so sure anyway here's a question for you what will you wear when you celebrate your 50th wedding anniversary well Shay found a story about yeah i'll let him tell it
3: a couple have celebrated half a century of marriage by dressing up how do they get new fancy outfits? Did they? Did they go and hire suits? Did they? They go to a designer shop somewhere. No, they dressed in their original wedding gown and suit. Jair and Margaret Watch still fitted perfectly into the outfits they had worn when they tied the knot on December twenty-second, nineteen seventy-three. The pair from uh, County Kerry, from Cordal in County Kerry, decided to wear. Uh, the special clothes to surprise their family at Christmas. Mrs. Walsh, a former teacher, explained, I kept my dress and we kept his clothes. I'm a great hoarder. Even so, uh, we had his shoes and and the exact tie that he wore as well. We didn't have the socks and the shirt. (laughs) Do you know where where that is? Do you know where the socks and shirt are? They're under the sink. Because they've been used for 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 polishing the piano. That's what that's that's if you want to look for them and the underwear. That's where that is because that's what it is in our house. Everything is torn up and used for. Where's your dad's shirt? Well, that's that's just cleaning. She told uh, talk about radio. Uh, she talked about on radio Kerry that her dress had come from a shop at Blarney Woolen Mills and was a loom weave, and the company which made it only went into liquidation in August of last year. Ah. Ah, uh, It's a beautiful fit 50 years and two children later She said I was absolutely over the moon I couldn't believe it To be fair I was surprised it looked so well And as it did on the day Except for the, the glasses It made me feel And look a little bit younger Mr. Walsh A retired trucker Said he had some bother <laughs> Fitting into a suit But I got into it The waistcoat was a little tight But I got into it Comfortably enough so well done. Uh, their relatives were delighted to see them all dressed up again. A lot of photographs and there's photographs around the place as well. I have photographs in front of me, and they look, they look amazing. In fact. I they don't look very much different from when the photograph was taken all those years ago. So when they got married in 1973. And they're a very stylish couple from 1973. It's a, it's a, I'm going to describe this dress now as a wool knit dress. And I'm going to be in trouble over that. But that's what I. it looks like to me. It's a beautiful dress, a fitted dress. And a, a kind of a, a fur lined shawl overhead. And then one of those 60s fur hats. Uh, and that's what Mrs Walsh has on. And you look fabulous. You need to have respect for your partner for a marriage to work, she said. We don't split anything. Everything is shared in one pot. There's no her in mine. People have become very individual and that causes a lot of arguments. So congratulations to you. 50 years, celebrating 50 years in the same wedding outfits. The trouser leg of my wedding outfit wouldn't fit my arm now.
0: So I'm, for a couple of reasons, very, very jealous. Shea, of course, as everybody knows, is built like a brick house. Arnold, Statham, Hemsworth, only oh, trotting after him. Now make sure you have your call card with you for this next item.
3: If you are around the city of, uh, well, various cities around Ireland, you may see old phone boxes. In, in Dublin, in the last couple of years, they've been um, well, renovated, replaced by digital information kiosks, and that's now happening in Cork as well. If you've been in Rory Gallagher Place, which is near St. Paul's Shopping Centre, you may have seen two disused phone boxes, which were used up to a few years ago, but unfortunately fell into disrepair, and the graffiti then the doors are s- screwed shut, and... I never understood why somebody didn't just put a big box over them and make a nice box with pictures of the street on it. But nevertheless, they were let go to rack and ruin. Well, things have changed. It's last call for Cork's old phone boxes and hello to digital pedestals. Telecom Aaron or sorry, Telecom Aaron. There's a the blast of the past. Telecom's company Air plans to remove all the city's redundant payphone boxes over the coming months and replace them with some sleek new kiosk style digital payphones. The company will have to apply to Cork City Council for a special license. There are fifteen phone boxes phone boxes in the city centre, and these are quite valuable. That's the reason that they're still there. It's the reason they haven't been knocked down, taken away, and the the right to have them there. That's why they kept them, because there are, well, there's 15 in the city centre, some in Ballancolic, Douglas, St. Luke's Cross, and at Chandon Street, with uh, most in poor visual condition or not working. Four redundant phone boxes have already been removed as part of recent public realm or streetscapes works. Well, 11 uh, areas have been. Slated to be replaced with new sleek kiosks, standalone kiosks with Wi Fi, interactive touchscreens, and tourist information. And funnily enough, a 1.7 meter by 0.96 meter LED advertising panel. Yeah, the removal and re- replacement will start in a matter of weeks. Have you ever used a public payphone? In the last 12 months, in the last 24 months, in the last 36 months, have you used, if you've been in any of the cities that have the new boxes, have you ever used one? I have never used one. I've never used it for any particular reason. I didn't know it was a Wi-Fi spot. Do you need Wi-Fi spots on the street? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you do.
0: I guess if your credit runs out, you can use data on your phone at one of these things. And of course, for tourists who might not have a decent roaming plan, twould be fierce handy. Maybe Conan could use it while he's here.
3: Are you familiar with Conan O'Brien? He of the red hair and seven foot tall. The comedian is in Ireland at the moment and he's filming an episode of his travel show Conan Without Borders. Now he's a huge, huge, huge star in uh, the United States. He's been on the Late Late Show here a number of times. Um, but he always, always identifies with his Irish heritages and talks about his large Irish family in Boston and the Irish sayings. And so he, he's very proud to be of his Irish heritage. His great-grandfather hailed from uh, the village of Galbally and uh, he decided he was going to make a return there. Now, he left in the 1870s, but local man Jim Fitzgerald uh, had a chat with him. But he, Stephen, he was talking to Stephen Colbert about the reason that... Uh, discovered his Irish heritage and, and where he was from
4: I found out I went to see my doctor a couple of months ago and just for physical he was doing the physical and he said by the way Conan uh I don't know if you're into this but I do DNA testing I'm very good at it we can find out about your heritage I said sure he took a DNA sample two weeks later he called me up and he said I've never ever ever had a DNA result like this before. And I've been doing this for 10 years. And I said, what is it? And he said, you are, and this is true, you are 100% Irish.
3: <laughs> he is 100 And if you look at him, in fairness, if you look at him, he looks 100% Irish. Well, he's made his way back to Gobley, And as I say, the uh, local man, Jim Fitzgerald, chatted with uh, Conan, who's 60, and took him on a visit to his ancestral home.
4: Hey, Conan O'Brien here. Uh, I'm from America... But I hail from Galbally. I've come from here and I've run into my good friend here, Jim Fitzgerald. Jim Fitzgerald is telling me all about the O'Briens, Galbally. And my great-grandfather left Galbally, I think, in the 1870s. And we're going to go see where his house used to be. But this is where it all started. This is where it started,
0: yeah. This village is here
4: since, I suppose, the 1400s. 1400s, yeah. 1400s. It's amazing.
3: Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? So if you've seen Conan, he's, seen, he's been spotted with a camera crew in Dublin as well as Luckray and Galway and other places. Did you get to speak to him? I'd love to know. He's a very nice man. I got to speak to him on the telephone for uh, one minute. You know, he was with somebody who was talking to him and they handed the phone and go, do you want to say hello? It's like, <laughs> nobody wants to do that. Nobody. I'm sure Conan was like, not really, not really. But anyway, yeah, he has a very good podcast as well. The Conan O'Brien uh, podcast is ex- excellent. So that's
0: Conan O'Brien. Hopefully we'll get to meet him uh, soon. One of the funniest 100% Irishman in the world, Conan O'Brien. Get him on the 9 o'clock show ASAP. And that's as good a place as any to leave the 100% Shea Byrne 9 o'clock show morning monologue. 24 years on, parents and pupils are still waiting on the development of a school in Leash for children with additional needs. As things stand, staff and children are being housed in poorly insulated buildings and prefabs. Today with Clare
5: Byrne, reporter Brian O'Connell spoke to the school's principal, Orla Mahan. We cater for children all over County Leash. We have some pupils from Kildare, we have some pupils from Offaly and some pupils now from um, Carlow. So it's a big catchment area. I'm here since the year 2000 and back then we did the guidelines and we did um, a plan of what we would like as a new school that is how long we're waiting on this school we had 14 students back then. We started as a school as a result of the Jamie Sinnott and the Paul Donoghue cases in the 1990s. And um, since then, we have grown in numbers and we currently have 45 children. This summer, we replaced on all of the prefab rooms that we have, we have replaced and the roof on them and had them sealed up because they're all leaking. So 2018, it really, really started. The site was allocated. The, um, the design team was allocated. The plans for the new school were designed. And we were told back then that it would be, give or take, five years. This is 2024. So we're still waiting. We're waiting for the ESB to do the last electrical cable. We've been told and promised that that would start um sometime in this month and that we would be ready with the builders on site uh march april so that's what we're still hoping for that's what our aim is but we'll we'll wait and see it's very frustrating because our biggest issue is space Mm-hmm. And if you have a 16 year old who is having issues with behaviour, who needs time to re regulate himself or herself, that's very difficult when you have nowhere for them to go. We no longer have a PE hall. We no longer are able to invite parents into the school for school gatherings, for school graduation, mm-hmm. because we no longer have space.
6: What do you want to hear from the Department, from the Minister for Education now?
5: What we would like to hear is that we have that they will adhere to the guidelines and to the time frame that they have committed to and that they can guarantee us that the builders will be on site at the latest the end of April.
7: Given those limitations that Orla described so well there uh, Brian the children are in spaces now that are just not suited to their needs.
6: Well I spoke to a number of parents who've campaigned for better facilities they feel like they've been let down with the lack of communication and progress and they want answers. They acknowledge that some progress was made there was a visit for example by Minister Josefa Madigan previously that resulted in a modular classroom which opened this week but while that was welcome they want progress on the overall project and they want better updates from the Department of Education. Now, first up, I spoke with Nia Ryan about her son, Liam, who's been going to the school for nine years and he needs 24-7 nursing care.
8: So he has severe cerebral palsy. He is in a wheelchair. He's nonverbal, tube fed, has epilepsy, um, has no um, functional use of his arms or legs. So he needs uh, 24-7 nursing care. I suppose it's so important for children lightly because really home and school are that's his life he loves it so it's important that it is a place that is safe for them to be in
6: obviously there's been a realization that the physical environment isn't appropriate and there have been plans announced and plans in place to change that where are things at now for you
8: um well really things haven't changed a whole lot <laughs> for for us um i mean we are As you know, awaiting the the new school to to start, Um, but we are still waiting for the ESB enabling works to be finished. We were originally told um, last April at our um, public meeting that we had here, which was well attended by our local representatives, our local councillors, our local TDs, and we were told that the, the enabling works would take three months and that they would be starting after Easter. They're still not finished nine months later. So realistically, from my son's point of view, as I said, he's 15 and a half. He has two years left in school and it's looking highly likely that he's not going to see the new school building. That's another generation of of children have gone through Colby Special School doing their entire education in a building that is completely inappropriate.
6: So that was Neve Ryan speaking about her son, Liam. Now, before we hear what the HSE, the ESB, and indeed what the Department of Education have to say as to why these enabling works haven't finished and the build can essentially get going, I spoke to one other parent, Orla Carrigan. She told me, Claire about her son, Luke, who's seven. And Luke has an intellectual disability, uh, autism, ADHD. And we'll hear again from Niamh at the end of this clip.
9: Our main issue is that the only time work seems to take place on this project is when there's publicity around it. Uh, there is no direct communication forthcoming from the department with parents, stakeholders, and um, it's a very heartbreaking situation.
6: And these enabling works are to, pre- to prepare the site, essentially, for the development that's going to take place.
9: Two cables have to be moved. One cable has been moved. There is an outstanding cable to be moved. And our, my real feeling would be is this was a money-making venture. This was an office block, a hotel or a shop it would be up in jig time. It wouldn't be stalling over the simple issue of the cable.
6: What do you want to hear from the department now?
9: Well, I would like a visit uh, from the department to the school. They did commit to doing that, but we haven't a date for it. Or for the minister to come to the school. I don't think there's an awareness of the scale of disrepair, neglect in that school. And I don't feel there's an awareness of how punishing a physical environment it is for children and how that can affect them. Why is it taking so long for a special school for profoundly disabled, severely disabled, medically complex children being put on the long finger?
8: I suppose from family's point of view, we appreciate what the staff do yes. in Colby because they really are incredible. And to be working in those conditions, I think they just do an amazing job. I really would like to see this new school built as quickly as possible. Like Liam has severe respiratory issues. So damp, mould, all that kind of thing, any expert will tell you that that is not a good environment for anybody who has any respiratory issues at all.
6: Is your frustration that you feel something like this should be fast-tracked, that you shouldn't be nine months later waiting for for enabling works, for example?
8: Absolutely. They're waiting 23 years for this school.
7: It's hard to believe that this is about two cables and that that needs to happen before the, the work can, can start. You tried to find out, um, Brian, what, what is going on here, why there is a hold-up.
6: Yeah, because I, I mean, found it quite puzzling. So I did try to, if you like, do a little bit of detective work here to see why haven't these enabling works been completed. So I asked the Department of Education, where are we at? And they told me the HSE can't start the remaining enabling works until the HSE, who's ultimately the landowner, <coughs> excuse me, issues a form called an SWA1. So once that can happen, then a whole series of actions can kick into place Um, and and a design team, for example, are involved, there'd be a tender process, a contractor would be appointed. A a meeting was held in December with the school's board of management and a design team. But once the contractor has been appointed, the officials will be in contact with the school, they say. So obviously I asked the ESB for an update given given that information. The ESB said they can confirm one of those cables. The work has been complete. As the other cable runs through HSE land, they're waiting on the paperwork from the HSE. That will allow them complete this works and they're going to continue to liaise closely with the relevant stakeholders. They are committing committed then to prioritising this once
0: that document has been received. So- Reporter Brian O'Connell on This Morning's Today with Claire Byrne with a tale of ridiculous bureaucracy showing us, well, just how much the state cares for its most vulnerable citizens. Now, we've all been inundated with scam attempts, and they're getting more sophisticated and more personalised. On this afternoon's Liveline, artist Emily McCormack told Joe Duffy about a very convincing scam attempt on her recently.
10: Um, it came in last Friday, and it was just in the middle of doing an oil painting blog, as you do. And um, it was purporting to be from an international gallery, yeah. and uh, it was a personal invitation to myself to apply yeah. for an exhibition that would be taking place at the end of February um, in their gallery in New
8: York. Okay, and, and should they... I
11: should—I'm remiss. People should. I know I knew your name, but people who don't know your name—you're a very well-known artist, primarily in oils. Um, you've been. Uh, you have a fantastic website, Emily McCormack, M A C K, uh, artist of Irish uh, paintings. Some uh, astonishingly good, um, and all of them good. Um, and t- t- so you you have you are an artist. They spotted they spotted you. So follow the money. How are they going to get money out of you, Emily? This art gallery in New York. <laughs>
10: Yeah, what they what they wanted to do is they, they looked for a fee, um, and it was just a once off fee. Now normally when uh, say a gallery takes us on, um, or any of the exhibitions that we take part in, the uh, galleries can take twenty to fifty percent depending yeah, yeah. um on the fee. So the initial fee was twelve hundred and then they were reducing that down to ten fifty. And you supply, say, 10, three to ten paintings for this exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, But there was no mention of further fees being taken off your paintings. So say you had a painting of 600 and say it was, um, I don't know, say the fee commission that they were charging was 50%. You have that in there. So like with three paintings, you're up to 900. So it wouldn't, it didn't seem to be in excessive. And uh, so I rang a great friend of mine, um, Tara Negreca, and she runs Wild Sheog. And I was there kind of thinking, will I take... Two months off to put the work together um, Mm and put everything to side, and she said, "God, yes, it's absolutely fabulous because it's an international. Like it would make you. They they represent some of the best artists in you know in the twenty first century." And um, so, I was kind of thinking maybe I will.
8: (laughs) Of course.
10: um, But like I suppose, um, like everything else. um, when you, you, We always check. Like, we're lucky here. I have a great yeah. web designer and um, I have a friend who has connections in the US as well right. and around the world. She's, um, and she was able to look um, right through the full thing and say, look, this is uh, it's a scam. But it genuinely did catch us out. Okay. Um, now, and I think you we were uh,
11: starting out. Okay, we, we, we won't give won't the name of the gallery, but the gallery no, does, does no. exist. They have an incredible website
10: oh they do and this email is fantastic like it's using all their social handles um it's using their address it's even p- um, picking one of their um their staff members yeah, yeah, and I see that. you know it it has everything right and then i like after talking to um while the um she said, "Look, just email them back." And like I emailed mm-hmm. them back, and because you were, you were required to email them back if okay. you were interested, and they came back straight away. So, so that's um, so. I suppose if you were starting out and you didn't know any better, and you didn't have the protections that we have in place here, um, you could get caught out. Okay. Do you um, know, yeah. this is the best I've seen because I genuinely yeah. <laughs> think, "Oh my God!" You know, I can. And I it will says, never have
11: to do. Dear Emily. Dear Emily I trust this message finds you well and in good spirits we greatly appreciate your enthusiastic response to our invitation to report to, to participate in the um, uh, upcoming exhibition at we we'll name the gallery shortly. Hopefully, once that they're they obviously are totally oblivious to this scam. We are so excited. Yeah. We're excited to have you join us for a comprehensive <laughs> yes. understanding. They have all the lingo, haven't they? For a comprehensive understanding for, yeah. of the exhibition guidelines, logistics, schedule. I recommend revisiting the initial email we sent you away. Should you have yeah. any lingering questions? What type of questions, Emily? Lingering questions. Please feel free to contact us for clarification proceed with your participation kindly submit your portfolio high quality images please Emily of your artworks that you wish to exhibit our board will thoughtfully evaluate and select pieces that align seamlessly Emily with our standards and exhibition theme in terms of fees the solo exhibition fee for artists is set at one thousand three hundred and fifty dollars, yeah. while the group exhibition fee is a thousand and fifty dollars, encompassing various aspects of yeah. the exhibition process, notably our partnership with they mentioned a the fine art logistics company, which does exist. Yeah. Ensures subsidized yeah. shipping costs. Once the exhibition contract is signed, the fees are settled, we can delve we can delve, Emily, into the specifics <laughs> of shipping arrangements. We are yeah. pleased to inform you, Emily, that artworks see, size 30 by 30 centimetres and above yeah. are acceptable yeah. for the exhibition. Your schedule, I've oh got a book of flight, Emily. Your she- know, you can bring I the know. family. Your schedule exhibition date will be from February 29th to May the 30th. So please, will you ensure that your artworks are shipped to us before February the 20th. Yeah. Now, so what would happen, Emily, if, would you ship, you'd pay them the money, they'd want the money up front before they say, yeah. that's, that's the scam. Yeah. Yeah. But where would you ship the artwork if you, if you still thought it was legit? Would you be shipping your artwork to this art gallery, which is in Manhattan, which is a very big art gallery, and yeah. your artwork arrives and they say, what is this?
10: I don't know. Like I'd imagine, they probably. I suppose technically, yes. Um, but I'd imagine if it is a scam, they'll probably have a warehouse. You know, they'll probably yeah. come up with something to say. And but, like, I, I tell you, I got caught in. Yeah, I can see I why. To, now, whether it's ego or vanity or whether you're wishing that it's actually true, so uh, it's I because know.
11: Emily. I, yeah. I suspect, and not to, by the way, it says at the end. Um, wishing you a happy holidays and a happy new year, Emily. Best regards, yeah. and David Name, is, which is a real name, but obviously the whole thing yeah, is trying yeah. the whole the whole thing is a is a to try and get uh, money out of you under false pretences. Yeah, I yeah. suspect Emily, like most artists I know, they're waiting on the phone call. I don't I don't know any wealthy artist, and I know some I, brilliant I, brilliant artists.
10: Oh, I know. I, know, I, I know. don't know
11: any wealthy artists, and they're they're. They're dying to be asked asked, uh, uh, will you go on to an international... Now, I know some of our artists are uh, internationally renowned, but again, I don't know any wealthy artists. But they're dying. Uh, uh, Any artist would jump at being offered a a, a space in one of the most prestigious galleries in New York. And especially, especially... As, and I'm talking about artists. We're not talking about amateurs like me, but I'm talking about yeah. artists uh, who have websites like yours, of accomplished accomplished work, and uh, working in various mediums, including oils, which is always a uh, harder, a harder medium and a more expensive medium. So you yeah. were just you you, were, you are an artist. You were
10: glad to get the break,
11: but you, did, yeah. you did, but you, luckily enough, you spotted that it wasn't a break; it was a scam.
10: Yeah. And I'm genuinely lucky in that I have the protection there for that. And a lot of people wouldn't.
0: Artist Emma McCormack telling Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Liveline how she dodged an elaborately staged scam related to her painting work. (music) Volleyball is big business at the University of Nebraska. 92,000 and three Nebraska fans set the world attendance record for a female sporting event last year. Director of Operations Lindsay Peterson joined Shea Byrne in studio this morning to discuss new research which found that despite support of Irish women's sports, the attendance figures are low.
3: We say in Ireland we support women's sport, but we don't attend in big numbers. Take us back to last August in Nebraska.
12: It was definitely a monumental day and hearing that play over, I could still get goosebumps thinking about that day because the impact of the day and the ripple effect that we've had since was not anything that we expected. Uh, We were... We were, we're competitive, obviously, in nature, and our rival had beat us in setting the attendance record, and so we were out to take it back, and our only opportunity to do that was to hold a volleyball match in our outdoor football stadium, and um, initially, the planning of it was to hopefully get, fill it halfway full, fifty, sixty thousand. Um, 60,000, but we quickly found through our marketing efforts and the way our ticket sales went after the first couple hours of that first day, we knew that we had an opportunity to really do something special. And so um, when we sold out the stadium and the talk of a world record um, came in front of us, uh, we knew we wanted to do that. And our fans are extremely loyal fans in Nebraska. We had a great fan base and they like to Try to do something no one else has ever done, and I think to think about doing that for a female sport was definitely monumental. And it was monumental not only for our program, the sport of volleyball, but women's sports in general, and just the media attention across the world that it received. I think really made a statement about the direction that women can do it, go in sport and female sport has in the future.
3: Can you give us a, a little bit of your, your own background? Were you a student at the University of Nebraska? Or?
12: Yeah, I I played there. I played for our current coach who. who. I work for is my boss now. And so I played for the volleyball program. Um, I grew up in Nebraska was a little girl who, uh, attended some of the Nebraska volleyball games dreaming one day I'd be able to put on that uniform and and represent my state. And, um, my dream came true. And then now I, I feel like I have the best job in the world too, getting to work, um, back with our volleyball program. But I am a mom of four. I, um, my husband, I met my husband in the athletic world too, and um, it's just been very. Um, I'm very grateful to have had the experiences that I've had in this job and and working for Nebraska volleyball and the Nebraska athletics. And I think it's just a um, the direction we're going and the impact they want to make on sport and on the young life or lives of all these young women is incredible. And to be a part of that is really special.
3: Before this world record attempt, what, have you seen, what were the attendances like at the volleyball matches?
12: We, we, our attendance is great. We sell out our venue, but our venue only holds 8,000 people. So um, the demand uh, for p- fans to see our game was there. We weren't sure that it was at that level. Um, but the opportunity to play there was going to allow fans that have never seen us play to see us play. And and we approached it as we wanted to be able to inspire young girls that have never seen us to see that they can dream big and some You know, their future is very bright and what they can do is even bigger than what we just pulled off on that day. And so um, it didn't happen overnight. Our fan base, you know, 50 years ago, they started with the volleyball players were, you know, raising funds to have uniforms and um, setting up the chairs for fans to come watch. And you you got to attend a volleyball match if you following our uh, football match or football game Fans would walk by the venue, and if you had a football ticket, you got to come into the volleyball game, and that's really how it started getting fans in the seats. Okay, um, but so you're sort
3: of piggybacking off the men's game,
12: absolutely. Yeah, and we had to be creative doing that. The coach at the time was like knew that um, our football was huge; we were selling out our football stadium. We had a, a, a great tradition in that program, and he he thought we need to try to g- grab some of that momentum and that that fan base to c- come on board with us. I, I can tell so- you there,
3: there are people listening in GAA, in, uh, in, in soccer, in various uh, sports, whether it be uh, female or male or whatever, and they're used to doing bag packing what, this, in the grocery store where we pack the bags and people throw us a, a couple of a uh, little bit of change or say, yeah, there uh-huh. you go. Or whether we're doing sponsored walks, whether we're doing a bake sale, we're doing all that. So we we, we identify with that. And I can tell you as a parent of a 15-year-old who's in GAA, I Like what we do is in our local, our local team, um, there's a quite a big concert venue in one of the local parks and the promoters of that concert venue pay the local JA club to provide stewards who work on the roads around the place in orange Jersey? So you'll see the parents sitting there drinking cups of soup <laughs> or cups yeah. of tea sitting on the chairs. And that's what we do to raise funds. So I, I definitely think we we can identify. By the way, if, if you're involved in women's sport, and we're talking about really participation today or attendance actually, trying to get people to come and see. Like we've got all these brilliant athletes and brilliant sports people in Ireland and we want people to see. Do please give us a shout, 51551 or 9 at rte.ie. So the free ticket was, that's a great idea. So the free ticket comes out. And, and you might think, I know there might be a little bit of pride saying, well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to piggyback off somebody else's event. But these are the kind of things that you had to do.
12: Right. We, we had to think outside the box and take a risk. And I think that's the important thing. If anything, time you're trying to create change, it's going to be uncomfortable. And um, you maybe have to put yourself out there a little bit. And the coach you know, 40 years ago, realized that and, and did it. And within years then started to see the momentum of our program picking up. And, and then it came to where now we're a revenue making sport and we're one of very few in the nation that in female sports that makes revenue. And so we've come a long ways and you think, in a pretty short period of time. And um, I think back to that day in August and seeing those former players who were the ones that were raising those funds and were setting up the chairs and to see the raw emotion they had on that day and the tears running down their face to know that they never dreamt it could come to this, but they were so thrilled and excited that we'd reached this point and for the young women that got to be a part of it. And now we hope that that inspires more young women you know, to do the same in the future and that the the players that played in that match are coming back in 20 years and seeing even greater numbers and statistics and, um, that the, the coverage of women's sports is in a greater level.
3: Volleyball, your own sports, it's, it's growing exponentially around the world.
12: It is. It's one of the most popular sports right now. And you see it in youth development and, um, within our high school programs in in the United States and, and just on, on a global factor as well. And so, uh, this past year just in in the sport of college volleyball in the United States I mean the media outlets really jumped on board and the viewership increased and set record numbers and the number of matches televised were set record was a record setting year so we're we're getting in that heading in the right direction and we're trying to continue to you know go on this momentum to, headed in the right direction for for women's sport in general
0: That's Lindsay Peterson University of Nebraska volleyball director of operations talking about women's sports with Shea Byrne on this morning's Nine O'Clock Show. Music Businessman Pascal Taggart has come up with a pretty controversial proposal to house essential workers on some of Dublin's best-known parklands. Taggart joined Claire Byrne this morning, and the first thing she asked him was why and how he came up with his proposal.
1: I came up with it because I'm observing crisis every time I look around me. In other words, I know teachers are not available in Dublin. I know nurses are certainly not available. I was chairman of uh, Sandwich Sports Clinic. Every board meeting we started with, what's the nurse's position? Unbelievable. And then obviously Gardaí are leaving the forces more than people joining. So that that, came, that was the problem. And mm. I came up with this solution. And by the way, if there's a better solution... I'm all for it. I would love to, some, this man here to give us a solution. Well,
7: we have Michael Pigeon beside you, Green Party uh, councillor on, with Dublin City Council, And we'll be hearing from Michael in just a moment. But tell me about the political reaction you've had to the proposal, Pascal. Uh, yeah,
1: could I, uh, yeah, I, I want to invite Michael to, to talk because Michael, I'm delighted he's here. Yeah. He's representing the Greens and the government. I'm here for a solution. If he's a better solution... Which doesn't involve parks, we are thrilled, delighted.
7: So you you are saying to Michael, there is no other option here, Correct. as far as you're concerned. And, uh,
1: just a, just Michael's CV is more than impressive. We hear this press officer with my old adversary, Lord Mayor of Dublin. You're spoiling can. me here now. This is. He said he can. Yeah, that's a story for another day. <laughs> Digital campaigner, European Greens, English teacher, head of Communities of the Irish Nurses and Midwives Association. Shop worker for Spar for f- over four years, which I'm very familiar with, as you probably know. Currently full-time councillor and leader of the Green Party group on Dublin County Council. Now, the reason I'm listing his experience is that he's clearly an expert in nurses and teachers. That's two of the three legs we want to solve. So hopefully he can explain to us that he's got a better solution and that uh, I can get back to playing golf. No.
7: Oh, right, come on, Michael. Sorry, no, Ma- Michael no, I wanna- no, 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 come on, you put your question, you read out his CV. So, Michael, what do you think of this plan to build on 10% of our parkland?
13: I, I don't think, I think it's a misdiagnosis of um, what we need. So land at the moment isn't, I don't think, the driving problem in building enough homes to end the housing crisis. So if you look at the Society of Chartered Surveyors, they did a report looking at the costs of what it uh, costs to deliver uh, an apartment in Ireland. They found that uh, land costs were about 10, 11% of the overall cost. If you look at what we've Zoned in Dumb City Council, we've zoned enough land for seventy thousand uh, new homes in the next four years. I, I we're not going to be able to build that many uh, at the current rate. So I, I don't think. It's always good to get development land. It's always good to get cheap development land. But I think this is probably the very hardest kind of land you could build on because it's not physically serviced already with, you know, water and electricity. But but also there's a huge political pushback that I think you've probably seen yourself um, yeah. trying to build on parkland. And it, to me, it feels like it, it's like if you're in the supermarket and you're going to pay and you, you choose the longest line to to, to go to at the checkouts because it's the hardest land to build When
7: I saw your proposal I wondered about that because we do have the sites like the land isn't the problem as Michael has outlined there's enough space there for 70,000 apartments. it's getting them built isn't it that's the problem.
1: No it's not. At some stage I'd like Michael to explain to the listeners what housing affordability is and how Dublin is now top of the world in the affordability league. This is it. yes we're number one in the world and that's, for the last five, we're number one in the world in affordability. Most people won't understand it. Michael understands it. If you just give us an answer to that and why, what, what affordability
13: is and why we're top of the league and top of the world. Sure. I, th- I think affordability for most people, if you're renting or a mortgage payment, would be paying hopefully substantially less than a third of your income. Uh, on housing costs, that—that that to me would be affordability. The way you get there is by building a lot of homes. The shortage we have at the moment is in building capacity in terms of labour, financing, planning decisions, that sort of thing. Land is part of it, but I don't think it's a big bit. And I think you're going after the hardest possible land. So you'd put all these resources into trying to get a tiny bit of parkland. I suspect you wouldn't get any houses at the end. I think it's—it's—it's—it's well intentioned, but I think you just end up with a lot of. Uh, Debate headlines, but perhaps not many homes. Pascal, a lot of people are are,
7: are texting us here to say that they're really not in favour of touching our beautiful parks, and one person suggests building on the dozens or so golf courses within the M50 instead of public parkland.
1: I'm not agreeing with that. What Michael hasn't said is why
13: are we top of the affordability league at number one in the world? Why? I think for a very simple reason that we essentially stopped building homes at the at the crash. Uh, if you go back to 2012, we built less than 5,000 homes in the country. In 2022, we built nearly 30,000. So we basically stopped building homes at the end of the Celtic Tiger because the construction industry collapsed. And as a result, our, pop- our population has continued to grow and we just haven't kept up. So for me, it's it, it, it's well-intentioned, but it's a bit of a distraction to say, oh, let's take a bit of a park and let's do that. Land isn't the issue. The issue is building capacity. Physical builders, the financing to do it, the materials to do it and the planning
7: permission. Uh, can can you address it. that, Pascal, that of land course. isn't the of, issue of here? Of course.
1: He's absolutely wrong. Location and located land is the problem. Look, we've had a housing policy for the last 10 years, particularly the last five years. We haven't got the houses. The problem is, where's our teachers going? Where's our nurses going? Where's our um they Take the guardie. They, uh, they have to commute two, three hours a day. They've got to come into Dublin where else most of the problems are. They've got to deal with gangland murders, domestic murders. They're getting out because they can't afford it. I spoke to a person down in Leash. His daughter was getting engaged to a guard. And the greatest threat he had was they didn't, if he if he, had, if he sent to Dublin, he was resigning. And they're all resigning. So, I mean, we have to get these very, very valuable people into work. And you can't, they can't work in Port Leash and drive in. They can't have commute times. And our solution is actually perfect. And their solution doesn't work. Because they're slowly, slowly, slowly getting houses. And the problem with that is, and I don't disagree with this, by the way, social housing, affordable housing, refugee housing, they all come before these very, very vital workers, which is teachers. And I'm sure you know teachers abroad. They'd love to come back. Parents would love them to come
7: Affordable back. housing, though, is for people on the incomes that you're you're discussing.
1: Yeah, but they're not, They're they're going to be last on the list. There's a, there's going to be a waiting list. And if you take a an unmarried mother with three kids versus a young teacher or a young gardener, the everybody people,
7: you everybody know? deserves deserves a home. And yes, they nobody no, are sorry. the same people. Now, what I mean. about what about these people who say specifically on the issue of using parkland that that is. It should be, they say to me on my screen here. It should be untouchable. They're so precious. They're so important to a, an urban area. What's your response to oh, that? My,
1: my, my response to that is very simple. I'm surrounded by parks. I live beside Bushy Park. You know, it's very, very necessary. If you took 10% of Bushy Park or Phoenix Park away, people wouldn't even notice.
0: Controversial. Businessman Pascal Taggart and Green Party councillor Michael Pigeon debate turning over land from Dublin's parks to build houses for frontline workers on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Mm-hmm. On this afternoon's Ray Darcy show, our host revealed that he's only just caught up at the Golden Globes
14: award ceremony. We were watching the Golden Globes last night. I know it was on on Sunday and yesterday was Wednesday night, but didn't get time. We all sat down and uh, it was... I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Uh, Joe Coy. Is that his name? Joe Coy. He was the MC. He's a 52-year-old um, comedian uh, of Asian heritage. And it's a tough job. Everyone said, even like people like, uh, you know, Emma Stone, they said it's a tough audience. It's it's a very tough audience. And they're very close to you. I don't know if you watched it, but it, it's in the round. And it's like in um, a ballroom, you know, that, that you'd have a wedding in or a, Debs or whatever. So low ceiling, people are right up against you. So you're there, you come out, and there's Bruce Springsteen to one side, Nicholas Cage, Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese, Emma Stone, uh, uh, Mar- Mar- Margot Robbie. They're all there, just within sort of twenty feet of you, <laughs> and you're trying to slag them. Anyway, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Just, just spotting the people, and, and of course, uh, our three were there three Irish men. You can't get over that, lads. Uh, three Irish actors nominated in the Best Actor category. Barry Keoghan, uh, Andrew Scott and Killian Murphy, who who won it for Oppenheimer. Uh, but they had the guest presenters. They come out and they, you know, they do a little bit of a routine. Uh, but my favourite was Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig. Uh, both of them hugely funny people. Uh, and it was so simple what they did. They, they, they were, you know, trying to be serious, maria. And then they'd be interrupted by a piece of music played over the, the, the PA system. And they'd look around as uh, trying to find the source of the music. And then it'd stop. And they'd carry on. And they go, and here we are to announce. And then again, and they'd start again. You see? And they'd look around. And they were getting a little bit perturbed and you as a viewer were going is this, is, this, is this a setup, or is there something wrong with the PA system? And then they'd be halfway through the next sentence and the nominations and then if you look closely you could see Kirsten Wigg's shoulder just doing a little a little up and down to the in time with the music and then you looked at Will Ferrell and he was doing the same left, right, left, right left, right and then <laughs> they broke into the funniest dance I've ever seen on, on would have been live at the time uh, and the two of them just danced around the stage to that piece of music Fluffing a Duck that's the name of music the name of the piece of music and it's, it's free so you can you can use it uh, but I know what I'll be doing the next time I'm doing a in something I'll be bringing the, the fluffing a duck along and I'll be getting the man on sound to go. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just can't help but smiling. You can't help but smiling. Um, the big winners in television were Beef and the Bear, um, and a lady called Io Adebery, uh won an award uh, for the Bear. She was very excited and excitable. Uh, and people who follow things in uh, movies and Ireland and people who claim to be Irish will know uh, Io Adebri because uh, she did uh, an Instagram post or some social media post back in 2023 uh, claiming that she had auditioned for the role of Jenny the donkey in The Banshees of Innie Shearn, which is very funny. So we're claiming her now as Irish. Um one of the English magazines has claimed Barry Kogan has been British, as they do on a regular basis. GQ, thank you very much, GQ. Um, but now we're, we're claiming Ayo Edebrey. And she, she gave a lovely, a lovely speech. She was just young and excited and so delighted to be there. And she was looking at all these people who were heroes of hers. Some of them were winning Golden Globes and Oscars before she was born. And, and she just she couldn't believe her look. It was like she was in a dream
13: agent and manager's assistance to the people who answer my
12: emails (laughs) y'all are real ones thank you for answering my crazy crazy emails yeah I'm really really grateful if I forgot to thank you
9: I'm sorry unless you were mean or something okay (laughs) bye (laughs)
10: Uh,
14: yeah unless you were mean or something and she turned on her heels and off she went Ray
0: Darcy relating the fun time he had watching this year's Golden Globes should we make Fluffing a Duck his theme tune? I think we should. Finally, on this episode of Playback Davey, jeans. We all wear them, but what cut of jeans should we be stepping out in if we wanted to be a style icon in 2024? Eva Dunikan from the Style Bob, a personal and corporate consultancy, was on hand this morning to provide Claire Byrne with just that answer.
2: There's been a huge um, shift, I suppose, in jeans. There's been a lot of talk about from skinny jeans to wide leg. I suppose the most positive thing about all of this is that there is now a jean for everybody. If you think back to the kind of the 80s, where we're all kind of lying in the bed, trying to close our 501s, that very stiff denim. Whereas now there's wonderful stretch, there's, there's great size, inclusivity, there's
7: lots of brands. So there is a lid for every pot mm-hmm. and there's a jean for everybody. Do you remember the awful time? Was it in the 90s? Yeah, the Britney era, the low slung jean. I mean, who... Who were they for? Oh God, I 15 remember. 15-year-old pop stars, that's who they were for. I remember being in
2: the park with the kids and uh, low-rise jeans, not a good <laughs> look. But that's all there was, you know, and, and we we nothing else um, to go with. And we do have to, uh, I think, you know, thank a lot of jean of manufacturers, but one person I want to call out here is what made jeans I suppose trendy not just Levi Strauss was Anna Wintour back in 1988 she was the first person to put jeans on a cover of Vogue she did 10,000 yeah 10,000 Christian Lacroix jacket with a pair of $50 jeans and I remember my sister coming home from New York and I'm in Westmeath and I'm going God that's very odd she's wearing jeans with a (laughs) a flimsy shirt but it worked and that's what I suppose allowed us all to, to really bring them into our wardrobes for all areas Okay. now I
7: really want to get advice from you for our listeners. Skinny jeans, gone or are, are they still permitted?
2: OK, skinny jeans. You talked about Kate Moss brought them. We were all wearing skinny jeans. I still put skinny jeans into certain people. If you love your legs and you want to show them off, you put, them, you put on your skinny jeans. If you feel a little bit dated in them, you're only dated with what you wear it with. So if anyone's got their skinny jeans out there, two pieces of advice is try and wear them with a little bit of an oversized blazer. Also crop the jean a little bit at the ankle because when we show a little bit of ankle, we create a crop which is actually very flattering on the leg. The whole thing with jeans depends on the rise, the stretch, the shape of the leg. The rise is really important. So if your legs are short, for example, mine are shorter, even though I'm five foot seven, I wear a high rise jean to elongate the leg. Uh, look for a jean with, with um, let's say the back of it a little bit, bit bigger or longer at the back because it gives you that um, support. If you have an hourglass figure, look for a cropped jean. Skinny jeans don't flatter everyone, Claire, We were forced into them years ago. I look back at pictures and I go, what was I thinking? But I live in my cropped boot cuts and they're very flattering. They're a great way to minimise the thighs. So the jeans are now out there to flatter as opposed to what we
7: were bet in two years ago. Mm, the boot cut though, that's controversial for people of a certain age who, who wore them once didn't wear them for years because I, I, I think the rule is you're never supposed to go back to a trend if you have them from the 70s and, and you
2: think this is great I think wear them well good for you if you can still wear them but again jeans technology has come on bootcuts are actually very flattering um, I suppose if if you're looking to minimise thighs as well because that balance at the bottom can create sometimes a slimmer thigh you can go back but maybe not wear them all Shania Twain like again put a nice blazer with them get a great pointy boot and the whole Thing with boot cut, if you're going to go for it, make sure that they're full length because they can shorten the leg at that half mass. So you don't uh, want to see an ankle with a, with no, a boot you, cut? I, I would do a cropped boot cut myself and make sure you show a little bit of your ankle bone. But if you're going fully boot cut, it should be down to the floor. And preferably, when you're getting them taken up, that the jean just touches the floor before you get it okay. taken up. Now,
7: you mentioned the pointy shoe there or, or boot. Yeah. So I think that's a dilemma for people as the jean shape is changing what do I put with the different types of of leg and cut? Okay, so if you're going to do a wide leg jean. Um, I
2: prefer, let's say, if you take a trainer, I prefer a much more, um, let's say, an elegant trainer or something chunky because it can cause this puddle, um, on the on the the, the jean. And um, if you're going to go for a cropped, I love my favourite wear to wear a cropped jean for nighttime. Actually, is a lovely um boot that goes under like a lovely sock boot is very slimming. So fitted on the ankle, fitted on the ankle, tight on the ankle. And then summertime, I love you know a ballet flash or a pointy toe. But the big thing is with the jean. Do I look comfortable? Am I comfortable? And does it flatter me? Because a lot of people, when they buy jeans, Claire, they buy them way too big. They will stretch. Ah. You know, your Levi's won't stretch. We get back to lying on the bed and we're trying to close them up. They've got no elastin in them. But if you've any more than, let's say, seven or eight percent elastin, they will stretch. Be very conscious when you buy jeans. Can you sit down on them? And can you if you can sit down, they're a little bit tight, they will give and they'll then turn into the perfect gene.
7: Okay, because if you're buying them with a bit of room in them, you're going to run into trouble after the yes. first wash. Yeah. Do you advocate spending a bit of money on jeans or are you happy for us to, to keep the price lower?
2: You know, there's, there's a jean out there for every budget. For me, I always look at cost per wear. And I was saying to somebody recently, they said, gosh, if you spend a lot of jeans, if I think of what I've spent on a top for a communion or something like that, that I might wear once. So if your lifestyle allows, especially if you are casual Friday at work and you buy yourself a great navy denim jean, you'll get the cost per wear out of that, Claire. So look at your lifestyle, because if you think about all the things that you can go with. And I've had hugs from people, Claire who said to me, if I'm not spending that money in jeans, they look at their wonderful posterior in them and they go, I found the perfect jean and thank you. So it is worth it. You know, and it depends who you are. You can go into Marks and Spencers, but do you want to spend the time going in and out of dressing rooms? If you're one of those people that just wants professional advice, go into the bigger department stores and just ask for the advice. Mm -hmm. And trust me, it's worth
7: putting in the effort. Marks and Spencers, I read, it was in a UK interview uh, with one of their people who's head of design or something. Their market completely overshadows everybody else in the UK they're selling that many jeans so that they must be doing something right but I suppose when it comes to jeans it's one of the things that maybe we should be spending a bit of time trying them on not buying online perhaps It's not the best online purchase unless you know your
2: jeans really really well so what I would say, have a positive mindset. Go out, maybe don't pick a Saturday clear to go shopping You have for to jeans. be in the right form for this. You have to be in the right because we have a love-hate relationship, love to wear them, hate to buy them. And I think go in and just try on, if you, if you see a jean that you think you might love, Take in three sizes because you, you're a different size in every brand of jean. Marks and Spencers do a great jean called the Magic Jean, and that's, that's very successful. But for me, um, there's a fabulous brand as well. If, if people want to get size inclusivity called the Good American, they're a good mid-price jean. And they go up to, I think, a micro size 30. So they're a fabulous jean. But again, think about the cost per wear. I I find some of my jeans, my own jeans here today, I got them in a sale years ago. I have them three years, you know, and they're still giving. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, if you say to yourself, I'm only going to buy one pair, spend the time, don't go online, be positive and sit down in those jeans. And also, it's a great tip as well, what I do is bring a couple of pairs of shoes with you.
0: Well, it's not called a shopping expedition for nothing I suppose. That's Eva Donnickin from the Style Bob talking to Claire Byrne this morning about jeans and what class of jeans to wear and where to buy them. <laughs> And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Nilo Shuradon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. I'll be back on the catch-up beat tomorrow. So until then, thank you for listening and good luck.